Hey, what's going on, everybody? You're listening to Sane Show, the show about nothing and everything. I'm your host, Cliff. And today, I have another special guest joining us. I have friend and production manager, tour manager, stage manager, Seth Carpenter. He's worked with the likes of The Glitch Mob, Mumford & Sons, Demi Lovato, The Backstreet Boys, and many others. Men, when, how are you doing, men? Hey, man. Hey, Cliff. I'm man, happy to be a part of this, man. Thank you for having me, sir. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on. I've been looking forward to this as well. So thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come on the same show today. Thank you for having me, man. I'm happy to be here. This is fun. Always. <laughs> so really quick, before I introduce the topics, I want to take a moment to shout out to all our listeners in all 60 plus countries. Thank you, guys. I love you guys. Thank you for continuing to like, share, subscribe, and spread the word about Sane Show. And if you're listening, be sure to press the subscribe button on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you're listening, Stitcher, on the 12 different platforms. And if you're not following us already, uh, be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Sane underscore show. That's Sane, S-A-N-E underscore show on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find us on Facebook, Sane Show. Again, on Facebook, that's Sane Show. So today we're going to have a conversation about repurposing existing products, primarily in the entertainment industry. And then we're going to have a conversation about set carpentry. Following that, we're going to have an interview with you men so that the listeners can learn more about you, the things you do, and all the fun and exciting things that go along with that. So let's go ahead and hop right into it with our first topic, repurposing existing products. So I, I was really intrigued by the conversation we had before you came on the show and just learning about some of the things that you had your hands in, one of them specifically being in the crowd noise technology, which I would love for you to talk to the listeners about and educate them on, you know, what's been going on with that. And, you know, also just some of the other things that have been going on in the industry and just seeing how, you know, people have been able to take and innovate upon what's already out there and just be able to make something of it while in the midst of the pandemic and, and still be able to give fans that experience that they've been having and just making up because things have changed with the entertainment space, especially live entertainment um, or any kind of event like sporting events that we see on TV, you know, basketball, football, uh, where there's live crowds and just seeing how people have been able to compensate for that even during the pandemic and fans not being able to be in a physical space. So I'm just going to turn it over to you to let you uh, tell the listeners about uh, this whole thing with the crowd noise technology and how you guys have been able to take and innovate and do something different in the midst of a pandemic. Yeah, man, it's pretty amazing stuff what the pandemic has done to the entertainment business, especially in live touring and and live show, you know, section of of that business. I myself, like many of my colleagues, have been out of work since March of 2020. Uh, No live shows. Um, They just started to come back now. So one of the things that I was able to pivot to, I had the opportunity through a uh, mutual friend of mine who is the Ableton guy for this company based in LA called Sonofans. It's one word, but it means so no fans at the game. And so that's the name of the company, Sonofans. And the gentleman that started it, Fred Vogler, who is the house audio, lead house audio engineer at the Hollywood Bowl and at the Disney Theater in LA. 
He's been doing the, that gig at those two places for many, many years now. And his sole duty is that anything that comes to the, both of those venues, whether it be a rock and roll show to the L.A. Symphony, to any kind of shows that has audio as an aspect of the show, which most shows do, he has his hands on it. He is, that's his system. He, he knows it like the back of his hand. And so when, the, when COVID hit, he, like me, he is not a touring guy. He's what we call in the business a house guy. I am a touring guy, but we were both in the same boat. No shows were happening. We both were, were out of work. And he, the smart man that Fred is, he had all of this back catalog years and years and years of crowd noise that he recorded on behalf of his good friend, Pete Carroll, who at the time was the head coach of USC. And so he would have Fred come out to the Saturday football games and he would record the audience. And then what he did would, once he had that, those recordings, he would come back on practice day, set up an array of speakers around the stadium. And then he would start playing crowd noise at the same level that the players would hear on the field. And so Pete Carroll would run his team through these drills to gain, you know, real game situations and have them practice their communications, hand signals, you know, verbal signals while there's 90, you know, however many, I think, I think that place hosts almost hundred thousand people. I'm not exactly sure, but so they could get to so the players could get used to practicing and playing under this din of loud people screaming all the time throughout the whole span of the game. And so Fred was like, man, I have all this back catalog of all these crowd noise. And so he proceeded to form this company to provide this service because he knew that there would be no live crowds at any sporting events. And he, um, he did a pitch to the LA Dodgers. He did a, um, and he did a pitch to Fox Sports and even to MLB, Major League Baseball in general. And so if you were watching anything on Fox Sports or Fox Sports, and it had to do with MLB, NFL, MLS soccer, and boxing, there were a bunch of guys sitting at a studio at Fox Sports on the Fox lot in LA, and they were overlaying the raw feed that they were getting in from from the broadcast truck for every game and there would be a bunch of guys overlaying it with fake crowd noise and it was getting mixed as it was happening and then it would get sent out to broadcast so you the person sitting at home watching nfl football in in the fall of of uh, 2020 when there was nobody in the stands but you you heard the game on tv like it was a stadium full of people which I think is a great, great thing that he did. And so part of his association with Fox Sports, the PBA, the Professional Bowlers Association, wanted somebody on site to do this rather than having somebody in the studio, doing it in the studio of getting the, the raw feed of, of, of the bowling tournament. They wanted somebody on site to do it live as it was happening. And so I got the opportunity from last year, like like September through... May of this year, I was traveling like pretty much every other weekend, depending on the schedule, to a bowling alley 
in somewhere in the US and I would just set up this rig and I would run fake crowd noise that was appropriate for bowling. They sent us some samples of what a crowd would sound like at, at a bowling tournament, like a professional bowling tournament. And James, the Ableton guy, he would build these sessions on Ableton. And I'm not sure if you know what Ableton is, but Ableton is a uh, music software, editing software, playback software that you can do infinite things with this uh, music playback software. And so we just build these sessions in Ableton instead of having being instruments, drums, guitar, it's just various layers and layers of crowd noise of boos and ahs and ohs and claps and cheers. And then I would just uh, just watch the bowling live and I would appropriately, you know, press the right button, twist the right knob to get the appropriate crowd reaction to what was happening on the bowling lanes. So essentially, I was essentially DJing crowd noise to bowling. Man, it was a really a fun job and uh, I really enjoyed it. It was something that I've never done before. Who would have thought that this would be a job opportunity for someone? Crazy things have come out of COVID. You know what I'm saying, Cliff? Yeah, yeah. And that's the beautiful thing about it. You know, it's all. It's sometimes it takes for the worst of things to happen for some of the greatest ideas to come about. And Absolutely. Some of, that, some of the things that come to mind for me is, are like the versus battles, you know, that happened on Instagram. And you see what came of that. And people got excited to see some of their yeah, favorite musicians yeah. and producers go head to head and battle it out. So, um, and just finding new ways to get the people engaged, right? Cause that's what it's all about. You know, somebody told me a long time ago, especially when we talk about entertainment, it's all about the experience. How can we provide an experience for our, whether it be the viewers or the listeners or, you know, the live audience, how can we still provide that experience? And, you know, that's what, what the people who came out on top did. They found a way to, to still provide that experience that people who love sports, who love entertainment, know and love. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, Fred, the company owner of Sona Fans, he's uh, he's not stopping. And uh, even though shows are coming back, and he's actually getting busy again at the Hollywood Bowl, he's not stopping. He's he's putting his foot on the gas when it comes to this company. He's uh, trying to uh, diversify. And now that he knows that you know in the fall there would be crowds again at football stadiums. So he's come up with a way to enhance the crowd that is at the stadium by, uh, he's going to be setting up an array of, of microphones throughout the stadium. And he's going to start mixing it live as is happening and then sending it to the uh, broadcast, the audio that he's you know supplementing. It's not so, so instead of taking crowd noise, fake crowd noise that's recorded, to supplement the crowd noise that's there, he's going to take the actual crowd noise that's happening as it's happening in game time, real game time, and using that to enhance what we hear on the television when we're at home watching it, which I think is genius. And I'm actually flying out on this weekend. I'm uh, going to be flying down to Miami to do the same gig that I did for the PBA, but I'm going to do it for the PFL, which which is the professional fighting league. And so it's MMA fighting for the PFL, which I believe is the next league down from UFC. Same type of fighting, just a different league. And yeah, I'm flying down to Miami and it's going to be broadcasted live on ESPN. So I'm going to be there doing my, my little crowd noise gig for that this coming weekend. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's a, 
I'm very excited about it. I'm kind of nervous because I don't know what to expect. Um, never have done an MMA fighting gig before, but but here we are, still you know pivoting on COVID. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, I'm excited for you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's going to be cool. I'm excited. All right, we're back. So now we're going to talk about set carpentry. And again, man, this is this is your line of work right here. So definitely you'll want to get your insight as a experienced set carpenter. Because uh, I, I mean, I looked it up to make sure I one had an idea of what I was talking about, learning through conversation and talking to you. So in short, I know basically set carpenters, guys that are responsible for building the sets and stage elements for the different shows that they work on. Could you walk the listeners and I through the process and a day in the life of a set carpenter, please? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my very first gig I ever got on a major tour was with Coldplay as the number four set carp. That means that there were four of us on a team and I was the the the, the runt of of the of the team. Since it was my first tour, I they gave me all the dirty work. But essentially a set carpenter is when you go to a show and you see a massive stage in that arena, in that stadium, someone is putting that together. And for the majority, you have this 60 by 40 stage, you know, 60 feet wide by 40 feet deep. And we carry the base structure, we carry the actual decks. We build it every day, we break it down every day, and we also maintain it when it needs to be maintained. You chain out, you chain out a, a, a lock there. You have to hang your soft goods, which hides all the, all the guts of the stage that hides it from the audience. That's referred to as the soft good, usually black, felt, fire resistant. Every time we come in, we have to have fire resistant stuff that, so that doesn't burn really quick. So yeah, so we, we come in in the morning, 8 a.m., we walk into the venue, we chalk the floor so that the, the riggers can start rigging the truss to hang the light has to be rigged and set by the rigger. So set cart, we come in in the morning, we, we empty our trucks, everything that we would need to build the stage that goes all the way to one end of the floor, whereas the other end, which we would call the upstage end of the floor, is where the stage will eventually sit once all the stuff that's getting hung is in the air but it all has to start on the floor so we can't be on top of them. So there's always a process when you build a show that certain process has to happen first before the next process happens. And, you know, any experienced touring crew will know that. And everybody works like individual, but like one giant machine, you'll have all these different departments working together at the same time to achieve the goal of, of building this show every night. While the lighting and the video crew and the rigging crew are on one end of the stage working on to build the truss and to get that up in the air so they can hang all the lights, everything that goes on the truss. We're at the other end and we're already starting to build the, the 60 by 40 staging that requires for majority of the shows that goes into arenas. And that could be, that's a lot of deck. So we need all that space to spread out to build this stuff. And so we're on one end, we're building, we have personnel, two, three guys that each have anywhere from three to, to five, four guys per person. That's the local consisting of the local crew. So one touring crew will get four local crew. 
and they have responsibility for once one part of that one aspect one element of that stage that they're building while the other point set carpenters are building another element of the stage and so we just kind of divide up our team we work on our individual aspects and then we connect each of those aspects together and then once that lighting rig goes up and the video wall is up in the air we'll get every single person on that floor all the touring crew all of the uh local crew and we'll push this massive structure of a stage that's rolling and we'll push it the, the 15 to 20 feet into position and we'll make sure that it's square that's lining up to what's in the air and then that's that's pretty much the main objective of, of, of a carpentry department of a tour is to build that station, get it in place. And once it's in place, we'll put some little detail stuff on top once it's in place. And then we'll wrap it up in our soft goods. And then what you see, what when we're done is what the audience will see when they walk into and walk onto that floor and they'll see that finished stage in position. And that's what we do every day, three or four or five times a week, depending on the schedule. So I looked through your resume and saw some major artists, quite a few at that, and some major pop artists, you know, like Demi and you know Lady Gaga, in which they have some really massive productions, and I would imagine is really involved. Can you talk to me and the listeners as far as what's that like working on those massive scale productions? I personally find it super cool because there's so many elements like I said, that goes into putting a show together where there's the equivalent of like 40 semi-trucks worth of gear. You know, a show like Lady Gaga, a show like Taylor Swift, a Rolling Stone, a U2, they're traveling. If, if, if you're doing a proper arena tour, you're going to travel anywhere between 15 to, to 30 to 35 semi-trucks full of gear. And, that's, and that travels for the duration of that tour, right? And then for a proper stadium tour, you're gonna have anywhere from 35 to 50 trucks. I know that when I was out on U2, we had one production system and three advanced systems. And the total amount of trucks was, I think like 140 semi-trucks, literally going around the world, putting this show together for U2. So it's no light task. It's a lot of gear. It takes a lot of manpower to put it together. And, and yeah, you start for a proper arena tour. You, you're, you're starting at 6, 7 in the morning. You're going to be up there for that entire span of time on show day. Whereas a big show, say Taylor Swift, 1989, that, was, that I did, that we did, it was a mix. We would have a full day. She would come in. We would load in the, the advanced package stage. That starts on uh, Wednesday. We, I'm sorry, on Tuesday. We would build Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, sometimes four days depending on the schedule. And then Friday would be when production comes in. So we build the structure. And on Friday, what happens is production comes in. And that's when you, you see the loading in of the video, the audio, and the lighting aspects of the show and then on saturday and sunday she'll do two shows in the city and then we do the show saturday and sunday and immediately sunday night as soon as taylor walks off of that stage we start tearing everything down and then the the advanced package that comes in that takes us three days to build will take us 12 hours overnight 
to to break down and load onto trucks and then and then we send that to the next city. So it takes a huge amount of man hours and time to put a show like that together. And, and every department is working in conjunction with each other to accomplish this. You you can't have people battling each other in order for them to finish what they need to do. So it's a it's a very symbiotic relationship. Each department relies on each other. And and we know that we can't do it alone, but we have to rely on them to do their job in order for us to do our job. And we have to rely on them to for them to do their job in a, you know, timely fashion. Because if one department is lagging behind and another department is waiting on it, then that other department is going to be lagging behind as well. So it's a well-oiled machine. Everything's very time sensitive. And, you know, you have to have this stuff to, to happen in order for another thing to happen. So it can it can get messy sometimes, you know, especially if you have a, a crew that's not as, as experienced as they should be when it comes to a complicated show build like we have on some of these tours that I've done. I've been very fortunate to work with some top-notch people, and, and we always have a good time. We always laugh, have a smile on the face, and are happy to be out there and, and doing the job. <laughs> that's really awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right, now for the interview. So now, man, I'm going to go ahead and ask you some questions so that the listeners and I can learn more about you and the things that you do. So I'm going to go ahead and fire off with this first question. Uh, your college degree was in literature. Uh, has there ever been a moment in your work where something you learned in that program somehow became relevant to one of your jobs? Yeah, yeah. So I graduated with a with a degree in, in English literature, with a concentration in Asian American literature. Obviously, I never went to teach it. I never really did anything with that, with what I majored. But it, it did help me through the process of doing those studies that I, and then once I got to start to doing my production work, my production managing and my tour managing on certain little bits here and there, there's always a technical writer or a hospitality writer. And what that does is, uh, uh, on a tour, if I'm the production manager of a tour, I have to reach out to the local production manager. Let's say my tour that I'm on, I'm going to be coming through a certain venue. Let's just say I'm in New York and I'm going to be doing the Brooklyn Steel, like I did with the Glitch Mob as a production manager. What I would do is way weeks, weeks in advance, possibly like a good month, month and a half, even before we uh, before show day, about a month and a half before. <laughs> I will have already reached out to Brooklyn Steel, introduced myself. Hi, my name is Min. I'm the production manager for The Glitch Mob. We have a show on this date. Uh, I just want to get the advance starting. And part of getting that advance starting is you have to submit to them our, our rider, which tells them exactly what we're doing. It tells them how we're getting there, how many trucks I'm bringing, how many tour buses I'm bringing, how big my crew is. I give them drawings and renderings of the show that we're doing. This is how many lights are going to be up in the air. Uh, this is what audio package I'm bringing. So they know. I give them this technical rider, and it tells them everything that I need from them in order to do this show properly, what my power requirements are, what my uh, spacing requirements are, how big is your stage, because I'm bringing in 
three set risers of gear that the band, that each member of the band is going to be standing on. And I need to make sure that what I'm bringing is going to fit on your stage. And if it doesn't, I have to modify it. So I'm doing all of like, like the homework and the studying. So I've been doing, I do a lot of writing, a lot of communicating in the advance. And, and I think that if anything, that being an English major really has helped me do that. As you know, has taught me some good proper English and how to write and how to express myself in my writing to get my ideas and my thoughts conveyed to the local team so they know exactly what they need, uh, what I need from them and, and, and what they need from me in order that when we, when we show up on, on the actual, the morning of the show, when we arrive from coming from the city before and, and I have to you know, start unloading my truck full of gear, I already know exactly what I'm doing even before I get there. I know where the truck is going to park. I know where the buses are going to park. I know that there are going to be three dressing rooms from, from the stage. You know, I know where catering is. So all of that is discussed weeks before we even show up. And, and any good advance will require great communication skills, you know, using your words to convey your thoughts across to the people. So I think that my English major has helped me do that very well in my advanced work, for sure. I would say that. Oh, it's good to hear. <laughs> yeah. A common thread that we see from guests on the show is the ability to pivot and learn new skills as their career goes on. Was that something that just happened along your path, or did you try to specifically make more opportunities for yourself? I think for me, it was really a combination of both. I, I, you know, in my younger twenties, I don't, I, I don't think that I was as a big go getter that that I am now. Now that I'm, I just turned fifty. Like in my twenties, you know, I just thought that my youth would be okay and that I would, yeah, things would come. But, but it doesn't really work that way, does it, Cliff? I mean, like you of all <laughs> people know that you've gotten to where you, you have gotten to where you are by putting the work in. And, and I find that the older that I get, the more hustling I have to do, not because I need to do things. I do it because it, it opens up avenues for me because I want to stay busy. I want to stay active. I want to keep going. I don't want to stop. I mean, like, you know, I've already got my stride going. I'm not going to slow down for anybody or anyone because I want to succeed. I want to, you know, do these things that, that really keeps me going and keeps my mind and my body in, in good spirits and, and, and mentally and spiritually, you know, I'm in a good place. So my work ethic is, is like no other. And I, I'm very proud of my work. I let my work speak for itself. And so to answer your question, it was a little bit of both. I, I, I felt that, you know, in order that I, I was so stagnant in my twenties, I was in such an, a, a dead end job that I had to, I said, man, I can't, I can't just do this for the rest of my life. I have to find something. So it was a matter. It was a, it was a combination of me desiring a change in my own life, and also for me to, to you know, create other avenues of work and and create avenues that I can make money and and better myself and my family at the time. At the time, I was married, living paycheck to paycheck. I I owned a house. I just had a baby come into my life. I was so happy to be a, a father for the first time. But, you know, I was stressed every day. I had to know that I had to get up and work five, six, seven, seven days a week sometimes, you know, just to pay the mortgage, get the bills on our time, put food on the table. You know, it's all stressful and I was just barely getting by. And then so when I had the opportunity to 
go into touring. And at the time, I was just working, uh, building homes, building houses in the construction business. I used that little bit of that construction skill that I had. And then I found an opportunity to be a set carpenter. So then I started building stages. And, you know, it's not the same. I'm, not every day I'm taking out a saw and I'm cutting wood every day. When, when you go build a stage at a show on a tour, it's like a giant erector set. The parts are there. You just make the connections and you put all the pieces together. It's like a giant Lego set, right? Every day you build it. Every day you break it down. You pack it away. You do it again the next day. So I'm not necessarily, you know, have a, a saw and, and a hammer and I'm hammering things all day. But I'm actually building. I'm actually using my my building skills to, to understand how structure works and understand how you know support beams work and you, where you need the support beams and where you need the legs to go and how do you need to secure those legs in order to to make that stage safe for people to walk around and go up and down on the stairs, right? So I was able to to pivot to my carpentry job that I was actually working with wood to pivot to building stages that were made out of steel and aluminum and and wood you know and and then and unfortunately it kind of reversed itself because when COVID hit i was able to pivot back to my job as a proper carpenter and then I, that's what i've been living off of as well as doing the supplemental crowd noise stuff i was building houses i was building cabinets i was in the shop and working with plywood and lumber and cutting and and you know making my miter cuts gluing things together to make a box to hang a cabinet, you know, so I, I was able to pivot like that and, and been very fortunate that it's, it's made me, you know, be able to live through and, and not be so that I see a lot of my colleagues who are, I was very fortunate that I had that, that, you know, old skill of carpentry work to fall back on during COVID when, when COVID hit back in March of 2020. Yeah, that's always good. My next question when looking at the timeline of your career, you have a lot of events that seem to overlap and you've discussed how busy your workload could be. Is it hard to schedule out all of that work and a personal life? Was scheduling something that you had to learn how to do? Yeah, I mean, you know, when I first started doing it, I knew that I would be on the road for weeks at a time. I knew that. And, you know, my boy, when I left to do that, my son was just five or six years old. So that was really hard on me. That part was super hard to try to communicate with him every day and being gone for weeks at a time. So it, it is hard when you're in the touring work, the the live show business, and you're especially on a day-to-day basis out there building these shows for these artists on a daily basis. You're not at home. You're You're sleeping in a hotel bed every other day. You're sleeping in your bunk on your bus every day and you're not, it's hard to hold down relationships. You have a girl, I've seen many numerous friends of mine who have lost wives and girlfriends or vice versa, husbands and boyfriends, because, you know, they're always gone. It's very, it can be difficult. It can be sometimes kind of lonely, even though you're working every night and you're standing in a room with 25,000 people having a blast and yelling and screaming and singing along. And, you know, you're knowing that you're going to be gone in a few hours and on to the next city doing it all over again. So it can be it can be hard on some people. I have a lot of people that ask me, man, I'm so jealous of you. You get to work for these cool bands and you get to travel the world. And and I was like, yeah, that sounds cool. And it does sound great. But but it's not for everyone. People say, hey, can I do it? I was like, well, 
can you be gone for three months at a time and not be able to see your significant other? And they have to think about it. It's like, oh yeah, I guess you're right. I was like, you have to think about those things. You have to be that, you know, you're away from your family and for long periods of time. I think the longest I was gone in one tour was I was gone for almost a year. We would have a week break here and there. But for the most part, I was gone for fully one year. I lived out of my suitcase for one full year out of my and living in hotel rooms. So it can it can it can be daunting. It can be a, a very lonely lifestyle if you're always constantly gone, you're in a new city. You know what I'm saying? And 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 you know, fortunately for me, my work, I really loved my work and it kept me focused. And because you are working 18 hour days, you know, eight in the morning to midnight, 1 a.m., 2 a.m. So it can be daunting. It can be a pretty lonely lifestyle. So, But you have to approach it with the proper attitude. But I've been very fortunate. I have really have thrived on it. I've, I love the traveling. I love the work. I love the people that I meet on the road. I, I find it very uh, comforting, you know, in my, in my older age now. But it can be hard if you're married with kids and the kids are young, for sure. That is definitely an issue for a lot of people when they're in the touring work as as a crew for a touring show, for sure, Cliff. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. My my last question to you, you know, this is one for fun. <laughs> uh, you you have spent some time working in the kitchen. What is your favorite thing to cook? Wow, man, that's a great question. So, yeah, so in my 20s, I as I told you before, I used to cook for this really great chef. Um, I was a sous chef probably for about, shoot, man, over 10 years, 10, 12 years. And and at the time when I was in my 20s and I just had gotten married and had a kid and just bought my first house, I was working two jobs. I was doing the carpentry construction job during the day, and then I would go and cook at night. And I really did enjoy cooking. I was cooking at a high level. Uh, man, what do I like to cook at home, man? I love grilling. I love my favorite dish will probably be um, Vietnamese. I was born in Vietnam, so I like to cook cook my mama's recipe, man. The Vietnamese pho, the noodles. You can't beat oh. that. It's <laughs> it's so it's so good on any day. And uh, yeah, that's a good yeah, style. that's that's my favorite thing. It's my mama's recipe. I've been making it for years. I've made it so much, buddy, that I don't even. It's in, ingrained in my head. I don't even need a recipe book. I, I just know how much to use, when to use it. And uh, yeah, it's I love. It. I just made some this past week, and it was and it was the best batch yet, bro. Now you're gonna have to make me some when I'm in town one one of these days. <laughs> for, for sure, man. For sure, you let me know. Yeah, for sure. That's that's automatic for the people, brother. Awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, man, I really enjoyed having you on the show, and I appreciate you sharing all this great insight. I really do. I know the listeners are going to appreciate it as well. So thank you again uh, for taking time out of your schedule to come on Sane Show today. Man, thank you for having me, my brother. Looking forward to it. You can have me back anytime, man. Love to do it again. Awesome, awesome. I was going to say the door is always open to you. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that. And, and listeners, thank you guys again for continuing to listen and continue to like share subscribe to saying show and remember you guys are listening to saying show show about nothing and everything and again i'm your host cliff and until next time we're out